1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jen Beckman about how she went from being an internet entrepreneur in the early days of social media to an art dealer with a gallery and a major website.
2: There are a lot of people out there who could be buying art who don't because nobody's trying to sell it to them. I describe the least expensive print as being like the gateway drug of the art world.
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: The door to Jen Beckman's gallery says, live with art, it's good for you. It's something that Jen Beckman herself truly believes, and it's the philosophy that propelled her from a successful internet career into an even more successful career in the art world. Her company, Jen Beckman Projects, shows art at the gallery, promotes photography in a competition called Hey Hotshot, and sells limited edition, low cost art on a site called 20 by 200. It's that last project where Beckman has truly extended her philosophy, because if art is good for you, then everyone should be able to afford it. Beckman says it's a way to support artists and to make collecting fun. Tim Beckman, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So I understand you went to Stuyvesant High School. So does that mean you're a native New Yorker?
2: I am. I'm one of, I was actually just talking to the cab driver about that, who was some, somewhat incredulous. But I'm a native New Yorker from Queens, I grew up in Forest Hills. Yes, and you know I'm a native New Yorker as well. I didn't know that. We
0: we are probably one, two of the few <laughs> native New Yorkers in the entire. We're a rare island these days of, of Manhattan right now. So you graduated from Hunter College
2: in I didn't, New York City. I oh, didn't did actually graduate. I didn't graduate. I'm a I'm a dropout. I was ah. a terrible student. Why? I think the same reason that I am kind of a terrible employee. Um, authority issues, <laughs> just authority issues and structure. I'm not a good structure person, which makes it really hard to edit me as well as the people who work with me for writing stuff will attest. I just, I was sort of ADD before ADD was talked about, and I just have my own path, I guess. So when did you decide to drop out? What year in
0: your college education oh, were you in?
2: I actually stayed in and out for almost four years altogether, but I just, I, I had a lot of incompletes.
0: Oh, okay. I think that's what confused me when I saw your college education parentheses in four years, I just assumed.
2: Right. Which was great when I first started my career. That I attended for four years. There was some careful wordsmithing. (laughs) Good to know. Now I'm proud.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So after finishing your college experience, you went headfirst into the Internet boom. You were chief creative officer at EarthNoise, senior manager of community development at Netscape, director of interactive programming at Disney, VP of user development at Meetup, cruise director at New York Online. What is a cruise director?
2: <laughs> well, so, so New York Online was actually where I started doing internet stuff. That was a first-class BBS, if you remember a time before the web. And, uh, it no, was a, I don't. A, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm old. But uh, the cruise director, I mean, basically I, we joked around that I was sort of like Julie, making sure that all the passengers were having a good time. I was a community manager. Director, I you know, I managed the community and dealt with everything from sort of moderation issues to setting up partnerships and things like that.
0: So almost all the places you worked were precursors to the big internet successes. Earth Noise was a predecessor of sorts to YouTube. Yes. Uh, Meetup is sort of a Foursquare meets
2: com meets. And it's still, I mean, it, Meetup is an interesting business too because it's an 11-year-old internet business and it's become sort of synonymous with getting together offline with people that you find online, which is much less novel these days. So they were early. (laughs) Was your
0: entry into the Internet world more a result of timing, or was it something that you planned or knew while you were at Hunter that you wanted to do? Oh,
2: no. The Internet didn't really... The web didn't exist at the time that I started working in the Internet, and I really had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Nothing? Never? When I was very young, my idea of what I wanted to be was to get paid to read magazines. Hmm. (laughs) So, like, maybe
0: a fact checker?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. I mean, I just, you know, my my stepfather calls me the zine queen because I always had stacks and stacks of periodicals and seven days – Seven Days Adam Moss. Paper, when paper was on paper. Paper. I was really into magazines, and I think that it was sort of the mix of design and culture and also kind of business. I always sort of look at things on a couple of different levels, and that was sort of my idea. And there weren't jobs reading magazines. I actually kicked around after I dropped out doing a few different things. I worked at a jazz publishing house. I was a switchboard operator for um, Ian Schrager's Hotels. And Schrager, I mean, he sort of pioneered the concept of the boutique hotel. Schrager was sort of popularizing the idea of of high design on a budget. And I do think that that had an influence on me, and it was definitely something that interested me. And then the Internet stuff started because I I reconnected with a friend of mine who I'd gone to high school with, Omar, who was the founder of New York Online, Omar Wasso. I worked with him for a long time, and it was like I finally found – what I wanted to do. I remember my first sort of email exchange with someone, and I was like, wow, it's a direct connection between my brain and somebody else's brain. And it's writing that can be spontaneous. And I mean, you know, as a communication medium, and sort of the immediate gratification, I just was really hooked. And I think the fact that it was new, and there weren't rules really made it possible for me to navigate it in a way where nobody knew what they were doing. So I didn't have to follow somebody else's structure and the fact that I'm sort of resourceful and scrappy served me well because I was working in places where we were all figuring stuff out together.
0: I love that you remember your first email exchange.
2: It was this guy, <laughs> it was this guy who lived in Austin who was the ad sales director for Fringeware, which was this it was a magazine. But it was really, I mean email was this really powerful thing for me and it I mean to me the power of the internet always has been and, and will always continue to be its ability to connect, you know, like-minded people who might find it hard to connect otherwise. And I I think that a lot of that had to do with the fact that New York Online, one of the things that distinguished it um, at the time was that it was over 50 percent people of color who were participating in online community. And in 1994-95, it was a very interesting swath. And it was a lot of people who had grown up. A lot of people in that community had been like the one black kid in their class at Harvard, you know, or like they'd had IV educations and they they had spent a lot of time feeling isolated. And this was a big community for connection that always sort of impressed me. And it's it's still to me to this day, no matter how obscure your idea or interest is, whether it's, you know, something that you collect that you can find scads of on eBay or some weird fetish that you have or some, you know, interest in typography or you can always find a community of people. It seems
0: to me that one of the common denominators in your career then, as varied as it's been, is accessibility.
2: Yes. And and I've been in the art business for the gallery's 10-year anniversary will be next year. So March 15th will have been open nine years. So it still feels very new to me, but I've been in the business for a while now. And um, accessibility and affordability, of it's very hard to couple those either of those words with art and not have it seem to compromise credibility in some way. Well, good art is supposed to be expensive. Right. Good anything is supposed to be expensive. Right. And yet the expense of something is often more of a reflection of someone's ego than it is maybe the inherent quality of the object that's expensive. Isn't that interesting (laughs) that we validate ourselves and feel good about
0: ourselves based on how much prestige is associated with it?
2: Listen, I gravitate towards expensive things all the time. (laughs) I can't lie. But um, I'd like to think that it's because there's a quality of craftsmanship or because there's some value beyond the status of it. But, you know, the art world has throughout History, it's kind of created value by scarcity. And one of the ways to create that scarcity is to make it inaccessible to most people so that the people who are spending feel really special. Well, I want to talk
0: about your path to opening Jen Beckman Gallery. Mm-hmm. I read that in 2000, you were 31 years old, earning six figures, yes. overseeing a staff of 30 people and working toward the promise of a huge stock windfall. And as you described it, then the bubble burst and you watched your stock options, your identity mm-hmm. and your future plans disappear overnight. And you also said that you thought that at that point in your life, you had it all figured out and you knew knew what your path was going to be then the company that you're working for goes out of business at the time i believe they owed you $40,000 yes what did you imagine your path was going to be before that happened if you knew where your path was going to be did you imagine it as an internet entrepreneur did you imagine it as sort of a rich dot com maven
2: the company that i was working with at that point was earth noise and as you referred to earlier it was a company where you could upload and share your video on the internet. Mm. It was 2000 however, so, so it was, was pre-YouTube, yes, pre-William Gibson's footage. It was really early heads. and it, but it was an AOL funded company in the middle of like, you know, kind of go-go web 1.0. And so when I took the job, I moved back from the West Coast to take this job, sort of thinking it was funded, we would do another round of funding, we would get acquired, I would earn out my options and you know, somewhere a few years ago be retired and learning to play the cello again, which I gave up in junior high school and always regret. And, you know, I think that part of the crisis for me when it all fell apart is that the internet was such an epiphany for me because I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up until the internet presented itself to me. And I was so excited about it and so To get to a point where so much of my identity and so much of the success that I had in my life was no longer an option, and also to feel like I had been running so fast. I mean, this is one of the things I think about a lot is, like, I've been running so fast for so many years at that point, and I was always very focused on where I was getting, and I never really took the time to let myself feel like I had accomplished anything. Why? Well... I'm definitely, like, a pretty driven person. Um, No. (laughs) You think? I'm like – and I think that – but I also think, you know, I didn't have a college degree. And when I worked at Netscape, everybody in my group was an MBA. I I had an inferiority complex. And, like, I sort of – I never stopped to kind of recognize the accomplishments as as I went. And when it kind of fell apart, I thought, wow, I peaked. And I didn't even know that it Mm -hmm. happened. And I felt kind of dumb for not – enjoying the things that i had achieved as i was achieving them did you really think that that was going to be your highest re- moment when earth noise went out of business owing me 40 grand i was completely burned out and i was unemployed for 18 months and i really didn't know like what i was going to do and so i did kind of think maybe this was you know at least i wasn't the high school football captain (laughs) but i really did i love that you said
0: football captain as opposed to homecoming queen i I will
2: never be a homecoming queen all my all my guy friends in new york might be homecoming queens but um no but i really i did i and and um in retrospect i'm really glad it happened because it was i mean i hesitate to say humbling because it's to me an infuriatingly often bandied about oh it's so humbling it's like the humble brag no it was really humbling like I was seriously cut back and you know but it in many ways I think it taught me to be the entrepreneur that I later became because you know like one of the things I talk about with my team and one of the things that I sort of like my inner coach is always telling me you know at the end of every day there's always going to be a really long list of what you didn't get done but looking at that list doesn't help propel you forward, whereas looking at what you did get done gives you the energy to go tackle more the next day. And so I always have a sort of interior dialogue with myself about kind of future tripping versus living in the moment and trying to enjoy things as they are right now. It sounds kind of corny, but... No, I completely, completely (laughs)
0: relate, completely relate. Now, so you were unemployed for 18 months, and somehow between the time you left earth noise, mm-hmm. and started your gallery, you made the decision to go from the internet to a bricks and mortar.
2: Yes. Well, so there was, so what happened, I was unemployed for 18 months. And then I went back to Meetup, okay. as the VP of user development, where on paper, it was the perfect job for me. And that was sort of like peak disillusionment, because it was a disaster it was like, it just did not work. And Scott Heiferman, the CEO, who's now my dear friend and actually invested in 20 by 200, he fired me. And, you know, someone who was like the queen of online community for years to go be the VP of user development at a company that was all about connecting people, for that to not work for me, you know, I really like I didn't know what to do. And when Scott let me go, I kind of decided that I was going to cash out my 401k at that point because it was very little money. I think it was like 20000 Yeah, it was like $20,000. I was like, well, I could live on this for another year in like this scrappy sort of way. Or, I mean, it's actually sort of absurd that I thought that I could do anything significant with that little money. But somehow it worked. I don't know why the people who gave me the lease on the gallery gave me a lease. They shouldn't have. Because the security deposit was $12,000. So you maxed out your credit cards. You took your $20,000 out of your 401k.
0: This is after already losing $40,000. Yes. (laughs) And opened the Jen Beckman Gallery. Yes. Now, you did this at a time when you didn't have a single piece of art hanging on your walls of your apartment. Yes. Why a gallery in the first place?
2: (laughs) I had a friend who was an artist. I had several friends who were artists, and I sort of became aware through my relationships with them how hard they worked and how hard it was for for them to translate that hard work into an environment where they would be shown professionally. And and then on the other side of it was the fact that no one had ever tried to sell me any art before. And the art that was available to me was, you know, I always talk about like looking at a pottery barn catalog and just feeling sort of intellectually insulted (laughs) by what was being made available to me. (laughs) And I was like, well, this is like, this is just wrong. And so... Naturally, I opened a gallery. Of course. I see that as a natural next step. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was, it, you know, it was just one of those – I mean, nobody thought I was serious, but it was really like it was a conversation. And in that conversation over the holidays, I was like, well, I would want to either be on Prince between Elizabeth and Bowery or Spring between Elizabeth and Bowery. And then on January 5th, I went for a walk with my friend and I found the storefront. On, on spring between Elizabeth and Bowery. So everything just sort of fell into place even though it seemed like it shouldn't. Well, it did and it didn't. I mean, from what I understand, when you first started, the only way that you were
0: able to keep the gallery afloat was to sublet your apartment in the East Village and spend nights on an air mattress in your mother's apartment in Queens. Yes. So that's not immediate overnight. This right. was meant to be, let's- No, no. Know, cheer in the streets. I'm
2: very stubborn. And it just was never an option for it not to work. And it's funny, like I look back, and I don't actually know how I sort of kept going because it was kind of crazy. Um, and uh, but I was I was very determined to figure out a way to make the idea work. Now, not to be a real buzzkill, but I do want to
0: spend a couple of more minutes on the struggles that yeah. you went through because it's extraordinary. I have watched your career. I. Was a big fan when you were the editor of Unbeige, the founding editor of Unbeige. I had no idea that any of this was going on simultaneously (laughs) while you were the founding editor of Unbeige, the design blog. That
2: That was the gig I took to try to freelance so I could have some money to pay rent.
0: Well, because I read at the lowest point, Mm -hmm. you were eight months behind in rent at the gallery. Yes. You were four months behind in rent at home. You had tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Yes, And you felt like the Willy Loman of the art world, always about to get your big break, which in many ways I think is incredibly optimistic, even to be thinking that that big break was still going to come. Optimistic, delusional. Uh, I mean, was there ever a time where you said, when do I give up? Were you ever on the verge of giving up hope?
2: It was never. I mean, it was never about hope. It was about determination. I think that even the people closest to me just thought it was ludicrous. But I could not imagine getting a job. I could not imagine going back to work. And also, you know, my parents, I just felt like if I failed, I would never hear the end of it from them. I love that. (laughs) What fuels success, our parents' (laughs) approval. But I really just, like, I felt like I couldn't imagine, like, sitting at Thanksgiving dinner, hearing about the folly of me opening this gallery. Like, it just, and it was just not an acceptable outcome for me. And But also, I really, uh, I really believed in what I was doing and was so delighted by what I discovered at working with artists. And I feel like art and artists are very misunderstood in our culture. Why is that? Because I think that part of the American, we have this ethic of, you know, purpose and utility, and art is not useful in a very direct way. And I think that also, you know, our concept of artists is that they're lazy somehow and that they don't want to work hard. And in in fact, you know, what I discovered from working with artists is that most artists by and large are not doing it because they want to be the next Andy Warhol. They're doing it at huge personal expense and sort of struggling to keep a practice going while trying to figure out how to make ends meet. They're not making art because they want to make money. They're making art because they have something to say that they want to share with the world. And, And I also think that people don't understand the value of art as you mentioned, like, I didn't have any art on my walls. And living with art, my life is better because of it. And for something that I I see as kind of such a joyful thing, essentially, that the business itself is so ugly, seems very wrong to me. And that so many people are shut out of this thing that can like, and I always feel corny when I talk about it. But like, it's very sincere. Like, I see art as essentially a joyful thing. And I think that, Right now, most people are robbed of a simple joy that could make a big difference in their lives. Having a piece of art on your wall that makes you feel good is nice. It's a small pleasure. And so that's why you started 20 by 200.
0: Yes. So how did that idea even come to be in your psyche?
2: I opened the gallery with very similar goals to the goals that underpin 20 by 200, which is, you know, I wanted to create this place where people would feel comfortable buying art. What I didn't anticipate was how intractable the baggage that people have about art is and how how no matter what i did people came in with expectations about who i was going to be as a gallery owner what the gallery was going to treat them like so um, your
0: brand so to speak yeah
2: yeah no matter what i said you know no matter it you know it does say live with art it's good for you on the door we do say hello to people when they walk in but at the same time it was also very important to me that that we're a gallery and so it's you know it's a relatively austere space and we have checklists and, you know, and I think it's very intimidating for people. And so I would see people not buy stuff. And I would think, like, if I could just convince them of how cool it was, but realizing that I couldn't do it within that environment and also that I couldn't do it within that environment at the scale that I wanted it to be at and also having been sitting on the sidelines of the Internet for many years at this point, which was a little frustrating for me. I thought, well, I could do – like I described the least expensive print as being like the gateway drug of the art world. I love that. <laughs> um, it's like get people hooked on the good stuff and then like know that they're going to be hooked and kind of we're, – we're less opportunistic. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of we're, – we're, it's a good addiction.
0: <laughs> so it sort of takes the words art dealer to a whole new yeah, place. Exactly. Exactly.
2: <laughs> and like – and to me it was very important – that if we deliver, you know, a quality art product at a price point that is sort of like lunch in New York City, that people would be able to connect with the kind of joy that I feel living with work or whatever. And, and, and that as they became more comfortable, that they would take bigger risks. You know, I opened the gallery, because I was very much aware of the opacity of the industry and how intimidating it was. And I realized that, sort of face-to-face was not the place to work it out. And I was just talking to somebody earlier today saying that, you know, it turns out that the intimacy of your inbox is actually kind of a great place to, like, address people about these issues. And so, you know, the business at its inception was very newsletter-driven. And it was me writing to people talking about art and, you know, trying to balance talking about it in a way that is, you know, credible and respectful and about the art and and the artists and also saying, you know, sometimes I like stuff because it's green and that's okay. And I think that a lot of people want to be given permission or need to be given permission to like things because they think that there's a whole set of rules that there's not. And yet art is so subjective. It is subjective. And I think that a lot of people like to characterize me as wanting to tear down the traditional art world and, you know, obviate the need for high-end galleries. And I I absolutely have no interest in that whatsoever. But I also think that anyone who wants to tell me that I can't have a picture of a cute baby animal on the wall next to my Ed Ruscha print can go fuck themselves because, like, they both make me really happy. Absolutely. And I think it's okay. Like, and I think it's actually good. And, you know, art has to make you happy. And, you know, I think that part of that experience is knowing why you like it, And also understanding why the person who made it made it and all that stuff. So those are all the different types of things that we're trying to address with people when we share work with them on the site. So for my listeners that might not be familiar with 20 by 200, can you describe it for us? Yes. 20 by 200 is a website where we sell affordable limited edition prints and we release new editions weekly And subscribers to our newsletter get the announcements first. And every time we release an edition, there's a very affordable version available, and prices go anywhere from $24 all the way up to $10,000. So every time we release a new image, the idea being that if you're a brand new person, you might have access to an 8x10 print that's very affordable. If you're someone who's a more serious collector, you know, a 30 by 40 print that's an edition of two that's $2,000 is actually a value as well. And we work with artists at all stages of their careers. We've worked with a lot of emerging artists, but we've also worked with very established artists like William Wegman or the Starnes. Lawrence Wiener. Lawrence Wiener. Marian Banshees has an edition with us. Paula Scher has an edition with us. And a lot of what drives us is also saying that this is not just for some rarefied fraction of the world, that this is something that everybody can get excited about and interested in and enjoy. I read that you said if you rely on the art rags or say the
0: New York Times for news about the art world, it's easy to get the impression that art is for the very few. Yes. Not even scads of money can get you the art you want. You need clout, cachet, or pedigree. So I love the idea that your own issues with authority have allowed you to provide (laughs) a service to people that might not necessarily have issues with authority but very well may be intimidated by not having clout, cachet, or pedigree to enter the art world.
2: I'm a business person, too, clearly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, to me, part of what I find incredible about the way that the art world has functioned to date is there are a lot of people out there who could be buying art who don't because nobody's trying to sell it to them. When I talk to people who have six-figure salaries who think that the only place they can go buy art is IKEA, I find that galling. But I also see a huge opportunity in that. And to me, the opportunity is both to make their lives better, but also to support artists in their practice and trying to figure out a way to get art into people's hands and then to pay the people who make that art. Right. And make
0: them some money as well. Yes. Now, you started twenty by two hundred in two thousand and seven. Yes. So it certainly wasn't at the apex of your success at the Jen Beckman Gallery. No. How long did it take to catch on? How worried were you at the beginning that
2: this might not catch on? I never worried for a second. Really, it really just fell into place as an idea, and I actually like I came up with the name during an im conversation with Kate Bingham and Bert, um, and I registered the domain name while I was talking to her, but it was very it was just very clear to me that it was going to work, and I think the fact that it was clear to me was what helped me rally the support to make it happen because i didn 't have one thin dime to make it happen with and you know, this was not the time that I maxed out my credit cards. My credit cards were, were maxed. I, I <laughs> was imagining that the case. It was a cash <laughs> business, 100%, which is, it was hard. <laughs> but it started working very quickly. And, you know, the the overhead was not high. To me, this is sort of the definition of, of Web 2.0 in a lot of ways. We launched the site using movable type and Google checkout. I didn't hire our developer full time until almost two years later when we had closed financing. So, you know, I didn't have a staff of people who had to update the website. We made blog posts and Google handled the transactions. So, you know, it was a time when you were able to kind of bootstrap stuff and it didn't demand the resources that you, you know, even like a few years earlier, it just would have been impossible. What was the first print you sold? The first print we sold was... Man Shroom, um, which is by this artist, it was a collage, it was a print based on a collage, and it's sold to my friend Alex Soth, who's a photographer, who has a publishing company now called Little Brown Mushroom, Nice, making it appropriate that he bought the mushroom print. So, And was the first series uh, profitable for you? The site, the idea of it at its inception was, it was very clear to me, I was going to email the announcement to the mailing list and it was going to sell out. And that was, by and large, how it worked from the get-go. What I didn't anticipate was what would happen when it sold out. And so yeah. What happened? people started talking about how, if you don't know Jen, you can't get a print. And <laughs> I was like, wait, time out. Like this Hater's going to hate her. you. Know? But it was also the antithesis of what right, of I course. wanted it to be. And also, the businesswoman in me was like, I am leaving money on the table when people discover the site for the first time and they come here and they see all this stuff and there's nothing for them to buy so about a year into the site's launch, the initial structure was always twenty dollars prints edition of 200 two hundred dollar prints an edition of twenty, and two thousand dollar prints in an edition of two. The other problem with that from a from a scalable business perspective is that the maximum value per individual edition was twelve thousand dollars that's not art for everyone it's art for more than most. but So we introduced new edition sizes, the most important one being the editions of five hundred fifty dollars prints that are 11 by 14s. And there was a lot of anxiety within the company about breaking our formula. And um, I was like, you know, this is going to work. And if it doesn't work, we don't have a business because it can't work otherwise. And, it, you know, introducing that drastically Transformed the economics of the business on an individual print level. And it also meant that there was inventory available to people when they came to the site for the first time. We're still catching up with that. I mean, you know, the site was designed to be a repository. It was almost an archive of previous editions because everything was happening in the newsletter. Um, And then we kind of switched to this having inventory and like creating opportunities for people to browse. And that's all stuff that we're still evolving now. But um, at that point, built into it, it just had the capacity to be to be a real grown up business, and you know, sort of started accelerating from there forward. I guess the last number I could
0: find online was that since you've launched, twenty by two hundred has sold more than sixty five thousand prints. Are you ready? I'm I'm sitting here holding the seat.
2: This week, this actually like literally before the end of the month, I think we'll hit one hundred and seventy thousand. <laughs> Jen Beckman, it's very exciting. And it's very exciting. Part of what's exciting to me about that is that it's like, again, it sounds corny, but it's 170,000 stories. It's like a piece of art in someone's life. And like the artists are very excited to have that kind of scale, like getting art into people's hands. But one of the other interesting things about it is, you know, how do you balance the, the legacy of like exclusivity Against this kind of accessibility, against the accessibility. How do you do that? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, to me, a lot of it is about integrity. It's about, you know, and I think that one of the things that we're trying to make more visible to people outside is how much effort and attention and time and thoughtfulness goes into both the physical production of the print and its presentation. And that, you know, when we ship people a print, it comes with the artist's statement and care instructions for the print and a certificate of authenticity that the artist has signed. And, you know, those are things that we do to communicate that this is not disposable. This is a real thing that has had a lot of time and effort put into it. You know, and I I think that there's nothing assembly line about what we're doing. So I think that as long as that's true and in the spirit of what we're producing, then... I mean, it's the same thing with people thinking that in the early days that you had to know Jen Beckman to get a print. each edition was 222 pieces, and there were 4,000 people on the list. Like the world is vast; 170,000 is is nothing, you know. And, well, it's still pretty damn good considering. But you know, I really, I really want everyone to collect art. I really want it to be something that people do in the same way that they read books or they talk about movies. I I want it to be a part of everyone's life. And so, while I'm very proud of what we've accomplished so far, and sort of like all of those different stories and all, of, you know, we've worked with over 200 artists. I really think about how how do we have 170 million stories at some point, you know, because the world's a big place. And, you know, I think that, you know, like we're just sort of scratching the surface of it. I think there's a real mutuality going on because I think that it's
0: wonderful that you can sell $100,000 worth of work by William Wegman in a day and 220 prints by William Pohaida in two hours. But think about... <laughs> how wonderful it is for the people that have the opportunity to be able to do this because they can afford it right. and to have that then in their lives. Right. That's that's phenomenal. I read that you are very promiscuous in your tastes, <laughs> that you're always
2: looking I everywhere. Yes, you did.
0: <laughs> so what makes a great 20 by 200 artist? How do you choose who to represent and, and who to create editions with?
2: It's a combination of things. I mean, you know, one of the artists that we work with, Sarah McKenzie, I saw her in a Exhibition at the Walker Museum, and I like tracked her down (laughs) because I like the work. You know, I find people online all the time, I find people. In galleries, in magazines, you know I, in a way I, I I am living my dream of like reading magazines for a living i just didn 't know that a lot of them would be on the internet because um, i didn 't know what the internet was um, but you know i 'm sort of always looking and it 's interesting like as I think about it, it really does go back to this appetite that I had as a kid of looking at magazines you know it wasn 't like, oh, I had to read vogue it was I really got excited about my stepfather 's weekly issue of crane 's business and that's pretty dry, but like you know, I'll look everywhere, and I think the fact that I'm willing to look everywhere is um, is represented in the diversity of of what we do. And then you know, more and more as the site and the business has matured, each time we work with a new artist, it's not a one off thing. We have ongoing relationships where you know, like with Mike and Doug Starn, we've done eight editions with them to date. Um, we've done we've worked with Bill Wegman several times. You know, it's an ongoing collaboration in almost every instance now. And so it's cumulative. And, you know, to me, that's a big important part of what we do as well, because I think about, I want artists to think of this as something that they can rely on in a toolkit of, you know, how they make it work to have their practice. How is the art world reacting to you now? Are you a thorn in their
0: side? Or are they accepting what you're doing with enthusiasm?
2: It varies a lot. I mean, I to me, the biggest successes are people who really thought that I was the devil when I started doing what I was doing and have kind of come around. There are a lot of people that would like to discredit what we're doing as, you know, not being real art. And I think that there will always be be detractors. But one of the things that I say all the time is that if everybody likes what you're doing, you're doing something wrong. Or as my mom told me when I was little, they're just jealous. (laughs) So I, you know, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't make me crazy when people try to undercut it. But, you know, by and large, there's an increasing amount of recognition. And there are some people who will never be sold on it. Well, Forbes magazine appointed you one of their 10 female entrepreneurs
0: to watch. So congratulations
2: in that. (laughs) Have there been a lot of copycats? There have, I mean, I think that uh, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I say that to myself often, bawling up my face to say, while crying, <laughs> you know. Uh, no, I never cry. Oh, good, good, good for you. <laughs> There's not. I mean, I'm the only person I know who was a writer and then an internet entrepreneur and then an art dealer, and who also has been involved in like sort of online photo stuff, from Photolog to Flickr to Tumblr, you know, I mean, 20 by 200 is a manifestation of a very disparate array of interests that I've had. And like loving Mickey Drexler is part of that as well. And so I don't really think that anyone is taking the approach that we're doing. And I feel very secure that the approach that we have is the right way. So I think it's hard to get it right. And I think that there's a lot of people in the world and a lot of art in the world, and we can't sell all the art to everyone. So I haven't seen someone doing it in a way yet that I feel like, oh, man, we're sunk. We're never going to be able to get out ahead of these people. And a part of that just has to do with the fact that, like, we really love what we're doing, and we're not going to stop doing it because someone else is doing it. I think, you know, to me, the thing that pushes me the most has far less to do with competition and more to do with art for everyone, and everyone is a lot of people, and how do we grow and maintain everything that makes the product special, And, you know, a sort of impatience to kind of both get there more quickly and also figure out how we get there. I read that you have only one rule for collectors. Buy art
0: that you love. Yes. And there is a lot of art to love on 20 by 200. (laughs) Jen, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Thank you. To learn more about Jen Beckman, go to 20by200.com and definitely check out all of the amazing art. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Randy Ortica, and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. Hit subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.